All right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Science in between. This is Scott. This is Ollie. And there we are. And our work here is done. (laughs) I think it would be more professional if we didn't like say, okay, the introduction is over now. (laughs) No, I I didn't say the introduction is over. I said, we're done. We're done. Okay. (laughs) That's the episode. (laughs) There you go. I've decided. Catch you next time. (laughs) In between. Wow. I mean, come on. Like this, I, people want bite-sized, consumable content, and so <laughs> where was the content? There was no content. There, the, sure, it, there was. There was the witty <laughs> opening of the show that's got the, you know, it's got some, it's got some bits because it's a callback to the way that we always open the show. There's plenty in there. Like it's a wow. It's it's I almost think... like a tootsie roll snowball. It's so good. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm on the lookout for some more because we have finished our Tootsie Roll snowballs. Some poor kid is going to be walking home from the store with a bag of snowballs and Ollie's going to knock him down and snatch his bag of snowballs. Maybe. Give me those. You don't need those. I need them. You just want them. I've I've been looking online for the Tootsie Roll snowball because I can order them right from the Tootsie Roll factory. Yeah, of course you can. I think yeah. you need to go to the Tootsie Roll factory and just stand outside with a big sign saying, I love your snowballs. Please give me as many as you can spare. Yeah. I, I, I You have to check out their website because it is fascinating. The history of the Tootsie Roll. Mm. Mm. So we went to, mm. I, this is like, what's it, like two or three episodes ago? That, that was my joy, the Tootsie Roll snowball. Yeah. 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 But that's not the conversation today. No, that's, you're not uh, simulating snowballs. No, look at you. See, you just did I, it. Pulled, I pulled an ollie right there. He did. I appreciate you. I will note. <laughs> I will note that I waited until after the show had been introduced, <laughs> so people knew what they were getting themselves into. That's what I appreciate about you. <laughs> Is that what you appreciate about me? Pitter patter. All right. So this week we are going to talk about ah. Uh, simulations in science um specifically like you know computer simulations if you're doing um like a a science lab or you know the i mean if if you've been working in education you know in science education you've you've used i'm sure you've used this Mm -hmm. like you know way back in the day um i remember uh, like interactive physics was a it was a when that like it was huge huge i just like blew my brain wide open when i saw like uh, interactive physics for the first time. This was yeah. like, it, it was a standalone program. Now, most of this stuff is now web-based, like, you know, and there was a bunch of Java-based ones that were, you know, but most of those have since moved on to HTML5. Um, but there's so many really cool uh, simulations out there. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about the utility of science simulations mm-hmm. uh, and also like how they fit into next generation science standards because I think they do, they mm-hmm. fit in. And I think, it, but what it requires is to think a little bit about how we use them and how we frame them. And because, you know, I don't think every simulation that's out there um, is useful for, you know, teaching um, in, in an ambitious way. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I'll, I'll say what made me think about this was, so I teach a capstone course in our graduate program and and in our our graduate program we have a graduate program around online teaching and a concentration in online teaching and another concentration in in stem education and so 
the students at the end have to do some sort of action research project around something they've learned in their in their concentration area. And one of my students looked at um, using uh, simulations as part yeah. of their uh, their unit. And so what they did was they had replaced uh, a unit that tip- they typically had done a lot of hands on physical labs and replace them with simulations because mm-hmm. uh, I guess whatever lab that labs that she did in this class were ones that were really expensive and what hard to like maintain. And she's like, okay, I want to see if, you know, I could do some online simulations and how this impacted student learning. And mm-hmm. so used some assessment data from a previous year and compared it to the assessment data for this year. And her, her results, her, the data she collected showed there was no difference mm-hmm. in in the student learning um, on overall in terms of the final assessment. And the way she framed it was, well, look, that's showing that the simulations are not effective. And I'm like, hold on. It's sh- it's showing me that they are as equally effective as whatever physical labs you're doing. And so maybe you have to really think about that. So it's, it's yeah. really about how you frame it. Because to me, if it's like, if there are some agency or autonomy or even, you know, funding or, you know, like, or ease of use, or like, there's a lot of ways we could frame that no difference as there being value added, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and and so what's this is while we were you and I were sending back and forth like texts for ideas for you know this episode, I was like, yeah, that that might be something that we should spend some time talking about. Sure, and and you know, I also have had a number of National Science Foundation projects that have that have involved the development of simulations, right? So so I've got um, projects that. That um, in collaboration with the Concord Consortium up in Massachusetts, we developed some simulations of of the Earth, which were the big. That was the big one. We had two projects around that, around developing tectonic simulators and um, and uh, of an of an Earth like planet. But that's a whole other conversation. And then um, and then we also had wildfires and flooding and hurricanes. Um, some simula- simulations in some of those environmental science areas. So, yeah, I mean, simulations are something that I've been thinking about for a while. And and uh, and I think they are really interesting. And, you know, one of the things that is related to this is science is becoming increasingly computational, which is to say model based in a in a in a computational sense. So many, many areas of science now require programming knowledge really to be to be able to be successful so it's it's less about test tubes it's more about computers these days so the so simulations in the broad sense are becoming a much more central part of not just how to learn science but how we do science yeah absolutely and i think the examples you provide i think are is for me one of the starting points for this is like i I don't think we should replace you know every physical lab with a simulation but I think that when there are there's content that is really challenging to teach in a classroom setting mm-hmm. because they're happening on some really macro scale or some really micro scale or like that could be in terms of size or in time, you know, because like some of the plate tectonic stuff is happening on a massive scale, like macro yeah. size wise, you know, physical size, but also time wise, yep. it happens over like millennia. Right. Right. And so that's a really hard thing to teach in a classroom environment. Right. If we go all the way at the other end of the spectrum, like say something at the atomic level. Right. 
that is really hard to teach because it's really hard for students to grasp, okay, these are the interactions of molecules, interactions of atoms or electrons or whatever. It's at such a microscopic scale that, you know, how do they even experience this? We could talk about mm-hmm. it. We can have them, you know, you like model it with like, you know, balls or sticky tape or whatever. Mm-hmm. But being able to see the interactions or a model of those interactions because of something that's happening on uh, with a computer simulation, that's a different thing. That's a different way to visualize it and a different yeah. way to have them experience it. So that to me is like, like a starting point. It's like if it's something, you know, that they can not experience in in a physical classroom, then it opens up some opportunities, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, well, and we should talk about there's, there's such a massive range when we talk about what simulations are. So there can be like very simple simulations. So um, like FET, which is um, what, what does FET stand for? Physical. I don't even know. That's fascinating. Interact FET simulations. So it's this is uh, one of the OG simulation sites out of the University of Colorado, and they're a clearinghouse of of sort of web based simulations. But but a lot of their simulations are focused on are, are pretty narrowly focused. So for example, a classic one that I've used, and I know a lot of teachers have used, is you know, there's like a it's about pressure and the relationship between atoms and right. pressure and volume, right? It's basically a gas law sort of simulation. And so you have like a chamber and you can add molecules in and you can change the size of the of the container and you get temperature and pressure readouts and all this stuff. So that's a pretty, you know, but that's a very constrained, simple simulation. And again, to contrast that with something like the tectonic simulator that, that we designed like that, that was much more complicated, right? It doesn't make it, it, I'm not trying to make a value judgment. These are different kinds of simulations, but, but the, but, you know, when you're trying to simulate tectonics uh, on a planet, that's a lot more complicated. There are a lot more variables. It's a lot more difficult to visualize and think about how, how you're going to represent that um, phenomenon in the simulation. But but it gives you a sense of the range, right? Like from relatively s- simple, straightforward, both in terms of phenomenon and the simulation itself, up to very complicated and complex forms of that. Yeah. So uh, just to take a step back, FET P H E T um, is uh, a website from the University of Colorado. Um, interactive simulations in a bunch of different areas. This is physics, chemistry, math, or science, biology. Uh, developed by uh, Nobel laureate Carl Weinman. Yep. So there you go. Um, physics. And so, physics dude. Um, and it's been around since like 2002. So these are some things that I, I certainly use some of the FET simulations um, in my classroom way back in the day. Uh, they have 167 different simulations across those different um, content areas, 121 different languages, and a whole ton of different um, lessons that you can do around that. So I, yeah. and I, this grew out, like, I think exploded. The opportunities to use these exploded when the pandemic hit because mm-hmm. folks were teaching science uh, you know, from a distance, remote science, and then looking for opportunities to, okay, how do I get students to engage with, you know, content? Right. Um, and I, I think the way you frame it is, is, is great. Is that like with the FET stuff there, it is a lot of, Hey, change this variable, see what happens, change this variable, see what happens. You know, they're really looking at, you know, uh, you know, condition response type of things to kind of like, you know, 
simplify it. Like, uh, so, and it's to help them understand like the impact that different variables have on, so it's like ideal gas law or Newton's second law or like all the things that like can be really simple, simple from a mathematical representation, whether it's, you know, universal law of gravitation or whatever. So you can see what that does mm-hmm. from a model standpoint, you know, it's pretty simple models, right? Yeah, I mean, right. Um, but they are really great things to be able to see and say, okay, I can, I can see the impacts of the stuff. Um, and I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that I, we talked a little bit about this before the, uh, um, the episode started about like the impacts of some of these things. Um, and you know, I, there's an article that I, I mean, we could share this, um, research article from Carl Wyman. He's the mm-hmm. second author in this it talks about like the ways that people use it, the impacts it has on student learning. Um, you know, because it's an in-class activity, it's a virtual lab for demonstrations, you know, and so on. And sure, clicker questions, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think um I mean, I think one of the things to that I think um well, we can talk about pros and cons of them, right? Um sure. in terms of simulations. I mean, as you say, often they're used either in situations where um, where the thing that you're trying to understand is very difficult for kids to interact with directly because of either time or scale, uh, physical, sorry, physical scale or time scale. Um, and then the other one is sometimes because of cost, right? Because this thing might be really expensive for kids to all interact with, so we're not going to have that happen. Um, but I think the other question that you have to think about is how do you treat the simulations? Um, because... There, there are different levels with simulations of how much they idealize compared to the phenomenon. So how how close do they try and represent the actual thing as it exists in the world, as opposed to stripping away a lot of that detail to try and get at the core thing that they're trying to represent? And, you know, this is a thing in physics all the time right. that we joke about, right? Like the this cow is represented as a sphere whose mass is equally distributed across the sphere. That's how that's how physicists often, you know, sort of glaze over a lot of the the inconvenient details that cause calculations to be really difficult and and um and messy. so yeah. yeah. Or and like you would do it like a, a collision experiment in class and be like, okay, momentum's conserved, except except it's in not <laughs> all of your data where it is yes. not. But you do a simulation and it's always conserved, right? Yeah, you can always perfectly. see it and it's yeah. graphed perfectly and you can see it. That's what the great thing about interactive physics. It was like, oh, look at that. Look, you yeah. see the graph and you could see the, you know, the momentum transferring from the one object to the other, and you could see the, you know. Mm-hmm how energy is impacted. Oh, look at that. It's yeah. perfect. Chef kiss. You know? right. Yeah. Which, you know, and g- going back to, you know, something we were talking about last episode, which is this idea of discomfort and, and right answers and all that stuff. Right. I mean, that's the problem with one of the potential dis- disadvantages to simulations is their, is their relative perfection. Um, and what that does to kids notions of how things should actually behave in the real world. Because, um, you know, helping them understand a concept through a simulation, that can be really useful. But if it gives them the sense that this is sort of unambiguously always the case and very clear, then um, that's pro- that's a problem when they start interacting with real things. And then they're like, well, wait a minute. You know, to your point, we do this momentum lab and there's no mo- momentum's basically never conserved in our data. So what what is that that idealized thing really telling us? And maybe it's telling us nothing, 
right? And so kids can, you know, that disconnect of the the science model and the reality of how it manifests, I think, is is important and, and is something that you really have to consider with simulations. Yeah. Well, I think the other part with it is like, if it's just a sort of verification type of thing, yeah. which is, you know, I think where the fat stuff, you know, really, if, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to overstate it, right? Yep. But that to me is where it kind of lives, right? Is like, it lives in a lot of verification type of labs, which are those things where you're just doing, hey, I just taught you the ideal gas law and look, hey, here's the ideal gas law, right? right? Yeah. And you can verify the thing works, even though that the, the simulation is based on the equation, right? right. right so right. it's kind of hard to like, yeah, it's verifying what. But I think that one of the, one of the things I find interesting is, you know, one of the pieces about next generation science standards is around this like phenomenon driven science, right? Yeah. You know, we're mm-hmm. come up with some sort of phenomena to drive the instruction. And so I'm intrigued by how can we use simulations for that purpose? Yeah. And that to me is something that's very different than, you know, verification type of lab or like to visual, visualize lab. It's like, okay, this is the thing that we're studying because it's represented. And, you know, one of the things and we can share this link in, in there too, uh, in in the show notes is that Open Syed has a ton of simulations that they've developed um, mm-hmm. that are around um, that are specific to phenomena based science, yeah. you know. Um, but interestingly, a lot of them are very similar to the, those either macro scale things or micro scale things like the molecular, you know, view of a cup or uh, a liquid in a cup or collisions mm-hmm. or you know, um, yeah like also thunderstorms and precipitation. So these are really hard things that would be to study in a, you know, you know, middle school classroom or something. Yeah. But there are simulations that they've created that can drive, you know, that, that type of instruction. Yeah, no. And, and interestingly on that, um, on that, that website, the open side website, they have a uh, seismic explorer, which is one of the ones from one of our projects. Right. And it was pre-existing, Ooh. I think, but um, but yeah, it's not actually a simulation, which I think is interesting. It's a data representation. So that's another, you know, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here of splitting hairs about things, but but the things that are there and listed as simulations are are representations of real data. Those are earthquake data that have been mapped onto a, onto the globe so that you can look for patterns in earthquakes. And that, it's not simulated. That's the way it really is. That's real data. As opposed to the Tectonic Explorer, which is the other tool that we developed, um, which is actually a simulation. And that is, you know, that means, so maybe this is worth differentiating here. So data representation, that's taking data and and presenting it in some format, in this case, mapped onto uh, a global map, right? And and different colors of earthquakes for depth or, or size um, and all that. A simulation uses, as you referenced, right, it uses our final form science, our understanding of of science in some way, usually in the form of an equation. And then it uses those equations to generate some kind of visualization. Um, So it's using our mathematical models of phenomenon to generate a representation and so it is, in some sense, as you said, with the ideal gas law, it's based on the model. It's based on the equation. Therefore, it behaves very much like the equation behaves, right? Because it's designed to do that. But that's interesting then to think about like, okay, well, then how do we use that 
Because then what we're saying is, well, how do we use that visualization as a form of essentially data? So have kids look at the simulation to gather data and reproduce the kinds of thinking that underlie the original equation that was used to build the simulation. So it's this weird sort of Ouroboros snake eating its own tail thing where um, like, what, what do we got going on here? But um, but I think it it brings up interesting questions about how do we use simulations as sources of data. Right. I, I appreciate the dropping the Ourobora and yeah. I because I just uh finished Loki and oh, there you go. Yeah, there's a character named uh Ouroboros in there, which is pretty fascinating. Nice. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that is it opens up um the sort of circular nature of of simulations, if it's built on the equation and you're trying to help students develop some understanding or, you know, explanation, you know, then is it, uh, I don't want to say, is it cheating, right? Yeah, right. What is it? Yeah, it's a good question. What, what is it? I mean, it's developing students' understanding, um, but it's almost like putting your, you know, you know, fingers on the scale a little bit, right? Because yeah. it's it's taking some of that messiness away, which, you know, is the stuff that we, you know, have that we're trying to avoid in, in physics class, right? The messiness of it. Yeah. Um, but it, it might actually be some of the stuff that can help students learn, right? It's that discomfort stuff we talked about last episode again. Yeah. Um, I like the ones where it's like that, that data representation. And I know that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily fall under the umbrella of, of simulations. And I don't know clearly what the distinction is between a data simulator and, or well, a data I mean- representer and a simulator you know yeah i mean i think i think the difference the fundamental difference as i see it and as i think it's represented in in the literature around this stuff right is is simply that data representations and it's right in the title are from data so they are they are they are data that has been gathered about real phenomenon and it's just being presented to you in an organized way whether the i mean it's you know you always tend to present data in organized ways, but data visualizations, you you are visualizing them in some way to help you understand the patterns in that data. But fundamentally, it's data about the real world. Simulations are built on models that we have developed, usually mathematical models, and then using those models, we produce a visual representation. So they're not based on data. They're based on are the patterns that we find from the data, we produce an equation that describes, and then we use that equation to re-represent the same phenomenon, but built on the equations rather than the original data. So this is why, this is why science is moving in this direction in so many areas is you gather data, you build a model, you use the model to build a simulation, use the simulation to identify areas where you don't understand parts of the phenomenon. And then that leads you back to where you gather more data. And so it becomes a cycle that includes this computational component of building a a simulation. Yeah. Well, that clarifies it. I mean, I I guess I understood the, the difference from it, but I'm like, in terms of, you know, I think they lead different places with, with, from a teaching standpoint, you know, and, and I would say just from the nature of when I taught um, high school and middle school and high school, there wasn't a lot of data representation stuff out there. Most Mm -hmm. of it was simulations and most of it was pretty simple simulations because at the time we're just talking about Java based stuff Mm -hmm. much cooler now, you know, and much more complex and, and, you know, computationally robust, 
you know, things out there now than existed, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I was teaching. Um, but I think the representation stuff is where you can really get kids to do some cool things in terms of, you know, coming up with evidence-based arguments about things yep. and looking at the data and saying, hmm, you know, what does the, re- uh, the data say? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I-, I wonder a little bit about like, I- it seems to me that there are probably some content areas that that, you know, reflects a little bit better than others. Like, you know, probably our science, certainly yeah. in, you know, environmental science, um, biology, maybe some chemistry, physics. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, so, you know, I think it has more to do, like you said, initially with, with the kind of phenomenon that you're trying to study. And, and certainly um, physics does touch on these, you know, small and big things. I mean, astronomy and astrophysics being the obvious example um, for the big things. Um, and then atomic stuff is always like, I, on some level, this is arbitrary boundary making, right? Like what's physics, what's chemistry? Like if we're talking about, I know we have that in our schools, but it, it's a, it's sort of an arbitrary distinction. But I mean, some of the cool simulations that are out there are in the, you know, areas that we haven't specifically talked about, like biology. So there's some really interesting, um, like genetics and, and breeding sorts of, uh, simulations there, there's a classic one also from the concrete consortium where you were breeding dragons, but there, but there's lots of other ones that are, that are not about mythical creatures that are about, um, breeding plants, for example, and you can generate a whole generation of plants and they're the external features that they have, the observable features, and then use that to try and understand patterns in the genetics. So, um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so much out there in terms of thinking about, um, how we can support kids engaging with phenomenon in ways that aren't the traditional, like getting out beakers and, and, you know, plates and, whatever and and doing you know dissections right so there's lots of ways that simulations can help us think about um alternative ways to engage kids with these phenomena that's not to say that we should get rid of physical labs i mean no and that's not what you're saying either um but i think it offers opportunities for you know us to expand the types of things we do in our classrooms yeah and, you know, again, some of this can have, we haven't talked about this explicitly yet, but some of this can have sort of an equity dimension to it, right? Which cuts both ways as it often does. But it's like, well, if you're in an under-resourced school, you may not have access to a lot of the physical materials that you need to do labs, right? Your school just may not support you having them because they don't have the budget. But if it's a web-based free thing. Well, now you can have kids that do, you know, a simulated dissection. Is that as good as a real dissection? No, it is not because they're, you know, again, it's sort of like the spherical cow all over again. Like when you dissect a frog using a simulation, you get a very clean um, and sort of stripped down essentially version of what it would look like to do that. And if you do it in real life, it's messier and more complicated because biological systems are messy and complicated. So, um, and, and those things are changing too. I think those are getting more and more sophisticated over time. And some of the stuff they're doing with, um, you know, visualizations of human beings in for, for medical school simulations, 
so you don't have to do cadavers anymore that now you can do a simulation. Um, I think that stuff is really fascinating. Well, I think the other part that to me that's fascinating is that, you know, in, you know, five, 10 years from now, as we start to th- see some of this, you know, um, virtual reality things that are like, yeah. I, I, when we recorded this, you know, our book, you know, study of science in the city, mm-hmm. you know, what was that like two or three years ago? Um, that was a chapter that you and I pushed back on uh, a little bit was, you know, Brian mm-hmm. Brown looking at virtual reality as, as being something on the horizon. And, and maybe he's just a, you know, a handful of years ahead of his time because, you know, I, I see now, you know, like for instance, our, our, the college of education just bought a whole, you know, classroom set of virtual reality headsets, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. with the intent of uh, helping, you know, our teacher candidates see ways of teaching with it. Also, um, you know, learning from it in terms of seeing classroom environments and, and interacting with, you know, teachers and, and students in classroom settings. Um, but I see that as being something that's absolutely on the horizon with science, you know, with sure. the science education. Because if they can, you know, if these simulations that they're going through can be something that they can actually experience firsthand or at least firsthand, and I use quotes, yeah. you know, virtually. from it vir- virtually. But if they can go in and manipulate the variables or like, you know, I know one of the like I have one of the meta headsets and you can go into a lab and actually, you know, grab equipment and, mm-hmm. you know, set up, set it up. And, you know, so there's lots of opportunities for that kind of stuff that is much safer, or much more controlled. Now, there's an, a cost associated right. with that that certainly is going to create its own equity issues. Yep. But the costs may be one-time costs or startup costs. They're not like, you know, like everyday costs or every lab costs, right? Because like chemistry is one of those things that there's so much of it that's consumable or replaceable. Like, okay, we got to spend so much money on test tubes this year or so many, you know, all that stuff is, you know, things that always have to be replaced. So that opens up another opportunity for, you know, how we, you know, expand the types of opportunities in science. Yeah. But I think there is a there is a fundamental tension here that um which is is between the messiness of the real world and and engaging with simulations and as a way to understand the world. And I and I do think there is a tension there because if if you're mostly engaging with simulations, um you're likely to get a, a very skewed notion of the world, which is not great. Like that yeah. that the world is simpler than it than it really is, and that and also um you know, uh, the idea that trying to understand that simulations are based on models, not on the world per se, I think that is a tricky piece to help kids understand, like that this is not representing in some real way what's happening in the world. It's it's a tool to help us understand it, but it simplifies a lot of things in ways that um, misrepresent the world. Right. And, and that's, that's a tricky thing, right. And it happens in lots of places, not just with simulations, but anytime you're finding patterns or building models, you're always saying, well, we're only going to explain the things that we want to, or that we choose to explain with this model. And we're going to cut some things out and not include them in our model. Um, And, and that's, but, but that process, understanding that process is really important to understanding uh, simulations. Um, because you know, if it's things like climate, 
people will say, oh, well, that's just a simulation. Like it's, it's not real. Like your, your simulation of the climate saying that it's going to lead to all these disastrous results doesn't mean it's actually going to lead to those results. It's just a simulation. And, and it, that's like saying things are just a theory, right? Yeah. It, it's a model and it's built on assumptions and data and lots of things, but to dismiss it as being just a model or just a simulation is also not correct. So there's a, there's a space Attention, in there right? that is important. Yeah. Like I, I think it's, it, it comes down to like how it's built and how it's designed and what level of, uh, complexity and messiness that we want to build into the system. Like, so I think a little bit about like, uh, so I have a, a, a friend who's, uh, who was a Chinook pilot mm-hmm. and, and actually it was a Chinook. He was a pilot, but then he became the instructor of Chinook pilots. Um, and so oh, very they had, a, yeah. So he had a, uh, he had a Chinook, uh, simulator mm-hmm. that he would, sure. you know, which I got to, I got to fly, oh, right. To fly. Which is really cool. Well, I mean, yeah. I wouldn't, Flying is a little like yeah. I, I'm using that very liberally you because operated I, did, it. I crashed more often than <laughs> I flew because it was really hard. Right. Yeah. And because it was the uh, simulation, like you walked into like really a, uh, a Chinook, like, like the actual the seats of yeah. the cockpit of a, of a um, helicopter. And you looked out and the screens looked like, you know, sky and grass and trees and all this it was really i mean this millions of dollars for this we probably shouldn't have been there right i mean i think he he pulled some strings to get us in for some me and a couple other guys went and uh in you know we logged we're probably in there for like an hour or two we're each taking turns flying so but that it was the situation was not like just like a a controlled environment. He had the ability to, as the instructor, to to make it more complex depending on the nature of you know what he was trying to teach. So sure. he would you know be back there and he would be like, okay, here comes a thunderstorm, or here comes you know wind, or here let me change yeah. the conditions of all of this stuff to to really help you know the pilot the or the learner you know experience complexity. Yeah, because yeah. that's real life. You know, right. there was training people for real life. And so I think that what we have to think about is as we use these simulations, and maybe we're at the beginning stages of of this, you know, um, is how do we build that complexity in to make yeah. it more realistic or more representative of, of the thing it's supposed to, like the complexity of, of real situations. You yeah, know? no, I think that's right. And I think, you know, especially with complex phenomena, like flying a helicopter or, you know, plate tectonics, um, there, there are ways that I think we need to scaffold that too, so that you you begin with a relatively simple piece and slowly um, expose them to more and more complexity, right? I think that can actually build up that understanding that, oh, this is a model, um, but it can get more and more complex. And yet it will never be as complex as the real thing, right? right? So as much as that simulation can help you learn how to fly a helicopter – at some point you actually got to fly a helicopter and, and flying it will be more difficult and complicated than the simulation was, even with all the things that he can throw at you, because there are things that, you know, are, are, are happening in the real world that just are surprises. Yeah. Well, it, it brings up, what was the, what's the guy, uh, the Tom Hanks movie that, uh, he played a pilot. 
Um, Tom Hanks, or you're talking about the Hudson landing in the Hudson? No. Yes. Yes. So that was um, Denzel Washington, wasn't it? No, it was. No, there's two separate movies. One, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks plays uh, the guy who uh, they fly. They come off. They fly and they hit like some ducks or something. Yeah, it's a bird hit. Yeah, bird strike. And then he lands the plane. And then the Denzel movie is one where he was drinking. Oh right, I'm yeah. I'm mixing my. And I think camera. that that's that's a fiction movie, a fictional bit. Yeah, movie. Sully is the one that you're Sully. talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in this movie, Sully, when he's you know, I think he's you know in front of a board of you know other pilots to, to you know decide whether he can keep his pilot's license. They're like, look, you know, we ran this simulation you know a bunch of times, and folks were able to land the plane back at the airport. Yeah, and he's like, hold on. You know, flying a simulation and doing this for real is completely different, yeah. you know, because the, the, the real thing, I, I mean, they knew it was coming. I didn't know it was coming. And I had yeah. this, all of the emotion and all of the things. And I had, you know, a couple hundred people's lives right. in my hands. And so I made the best call I, I could with the time. It's yeah. like the, and, and so that I think is, is relevant here. Like we can do yeah. these simulations and there are opportunities for learning and, and all that but i mean there if if we could do the real stuff let's do the real stuff because the yeah. the real stuff can provide opportunities that may be unpredictable right yep. like um maybe not with like collision carts and you know or yeah. maybe who knows yeah yeah i mean i think i think b- building up to that complexity but also not avoiding that complexity is important because we do want people to understand that phenomena in the world are complicated and we never, you know, this is a fundamental tenet of the way you think about science, right? We never a hundred percent understand stuff. We have models. Models are powerful, useful tools that, that let us do all sorts of amazing things in the world, but they do not provide unambiguous, perfect information about the way the world works because they're just models. They, they include what they include and they exclude what they exclude. And oftentimes we don't pay attention to that. And even when we do, like we can't, you know, we're not the watchmaker where the whole universe is built and it's just sort of happening and we can understand it that way. Like we physicists who used to seek that as our goal, like to understand all of the rules so that we can model the whole universe we increasingly understand that that is not possible and not even a goal, right? We want to understand it as best we can, but we're never going to perfectly understand it because it's too complicated. It's just not, it's never going to be that way, but that doesn't mean understanding it better and better isn't useful. It's super useful. And that might be a good place for us to move to joys, you know, to joys. Yeah. What do you have for joys today? Uh, I, I would say this, like this, we're, we're recording this during the holiday season. It's Christmas time. And, and, uh, I really enjoy Advent based things, mm, you know, like, like Advent calendars or yeah, like there's a host of Advent calendar things out there, mm-hmm. you know, like I really enjoy the 24 days of, of tea or the 24 days of, oh, okay. you know, right. chocolate or, yep. you know, Lego. We did this with the kids when they were younger. You know, I like those advent based things because I like I like 24 days of surprise. I like that. Mm, okay. 
you right. know, or 25 so, days. I so do you have a, an Advent thing that you're doing this year? That Oh, uh, sorry. I, I am. Uh, no, it's good. That's a good lead in. I, uh, one of my uh, friends did a beer. Oh, I should have uh, known. Craft beer. And okay. so what uh what he did was he got 20 what four of us together and each one of us of us was uh to buy a case of beer and wrap the beer cans or beer bottles. Mm. And then we took the case in another case so we couldn't actually use the case um that the beer came in. We had yeah. to I, Put it in oh, sure, else. you couldn't, right? Because he didn't want to know either. Yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah. he, right. and so then, you know, he and his wife, you know, assembled this whole thing, and she so got this mixed case of of wrapped beer, and uh, you know, each day you can open up. And uh, I would say that he he sent out this email or uh, to everyone at the beginning. He's like, "Look, you don't have to drink a beer every day for twenty four days." <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to do that. If mm-hmm. you want, if you want to, you can, <laughs> but if you want to like, there's no rules. Like if you want to, you know, say, okay, I'm going to, you know, do them only on weekends and, you know, open them up a couple and have some people over and mm-hmm. you know, taste them. That's great. If you want to, like one person's like, I'm going to save all mine till Christmas Eve. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, Drink all, right. All, 24. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, you go. <laughs> make for an interesting <laughs> nice. uh, Christmas morning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I've been there. I think I've been yeah, there. Uh-huh. I, I I have experienced that one. Not personally. But I've seen I, I've seen others do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah. But I, sh- I think that 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 theme, right? I saw like uh like Studio Ghibli. You know that 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 movie. Yeah, sure. uh, that they have yeah. a advent where you get like little figures from oh, all the different nice. movies. You know, and our my kids are big Studio Ghibli folks. You yeah. know, fans. Yeah. yeah. So I I just I like that. You know. 24 days of surprise. That's cool. No. Yeah. yeah. All right. I like it. Well, I, yeah, I'm just impressed. You have 24 friends that you can, you can uh, organize a case oh, of beer. I, around. I don't have, tw- oh. uh, I don't have 24 friends. This other guy has 24. Friends. I see. I was just the one guy. He you was were one with. guy. One guy. I don't think I know anybody else in this group. You know, oh, I just happen to I be see. the one guy. You know? Okay. Yeah. That's impressive though. Uh, 24 that's... friends. I don't know. No. I mean, my children uh, frequently remind me that I don't have any friends, um, that I just have my I just have my wife's spouses or oh, my wife's friend's yeah. spouses. Like, Sorry, that? that was that, that was wrong. I was like, I was like, wow, I'm my only friend. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, I think it's I think it's a cool idea. It's quite a logistical uh, undertaking, taking 24 cases of wrapped beverages and reorganizing them into an advent calendar of beer i mean they deserve some real props for that right he he put some time and effort in each one comes with a number like on it so you have to know which one to you know and everybody has i assume the same number so in theory you could all like taste together you could if if they were your friends you could say like oh well there's stuff going on in email like you know there's a whole email like and I, I think they're doing something on Untapped, which is the app, you know. Oh, sure. So yeah, that yeah. that um, but you know, yeah. I'm 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 not doing. It. I like the surprise, and that's uh, that's, that's what I that's can attend to most, right now. That's where you mostly fall down is on is on that. Yeah. Yeah. I just like the surprise. Yeah, I don't like the the social media aspect of it, no. or like no, no. And and I will say that uh, one of like I think it was number one was this hot honey beer, a hot mm. honey lager. And I'm like, okay, 
whoever bought number one. Bad on you. Bad. Bad, bad choice yeah. for all like hot. Like, okay. First off, it's a hot beer. Hot. Like it was spicy. Yeah. I hear you. I understand what hot means in this context. Yeah. So I mean, you don't, doesn't mean you put it on the stovetop. I like the concept of hot honey, right? That's, yeah. you know, that's, that's I like it on pizza. Sure. And I yeah. think that's what it was intended. Like, Hey, have this with it. Cause it was like a, on the label, like a little, you know, yeah, a pizza. little pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Hey, have some, you know, have some pizza with the hot honey beer. Mm-mm, no, 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 not no. going to do that. No, no. Because then you, then it's too much hot honey. Cause then you're yeah. having hot honey pizza and hot honey beer. Like the beer is supposed to be a counterpoint to the pizza. Sometimes just having enough of something is enough, you know? Wow. Deep That's thoughts. Profound. <laughs> Deep thoughts from Jack Handy. <laughs> Sometimes having enough is enough. <laughs> All right. What uh, about you? Choice for you, my friend? Well, you you made me think now I'm, I'm changing my joy. So I'm going to, because the hot honey pizza thing made me think about this. So <clears throat> just recently, a uh, pizza place opened in State College. I mean, it's been open six or seven months now, I think, but, um, but it is called Eight Mile Pizza, and it is uh, Detroit style pizza, and it is really good. I mean, I I think it's maybe the best pizza in town now. But that's you know maybe ah. just my POV on that. Um, I mean, we're not in fairness, we're not like New York or New Haven or even you know whatever Chicago that has like a pizza culture around a particular pizza. Like we we have pizza places, we have lots of pizza places. Um, but um, but it's not like there's a state college pizza or something. But so what makes a Detroit pizza? Like what's Detroit yeah? So, so it's a it's a thicker pizza. It's almost like a focaccio bread sort of vibe to it. It's cooked. What in kind a, of bread? Uh, focaccio. Focaccio. Okay. It's, it's, you you tell they, me. You're the Italian speaker. I was. Uh, it has an A at the end. Focaccia. Focaccia. Yeah. Sorry. Um. So. Uh, and then, but it's, so there's a, so the whole, it's an even sort of crust. So it's not like in a traditional pizza where there's like a, a sort of ring of crust around the outside and then it goes flat on the interior. Um, and then it's got cheese and toppings. And then the big, two big things that make it distinctively Detroit style is the sauce is on top of the topping. So mm. the sauce is the top layer. And then it's baked in a metal pan that has some depth to it. And it's got a lot of cheese around the edges. So, so the cheese you get like a crunchy outer crust around the pizza, um, which is really delicious. So, and they, at this local uh, eight mile uh, pizza place, they do a hot honey pizza where they put um, some hot honey and some ricotta on top as well. So, so yeah, I've been really liking it. They do cheesesteaks and other food too, but their, their core competency is this Detroit style pizza. And um, yeah, if you're in state college, either permanently or occasionally, I recommend you swing in and and get some pizza from them because it is very good. Yeah. I'm looking to see if it's a, uh, it's a chain and it does not look like it it is is. not a chain. It is, is just a guy who started this pizza place. And what a great name for it though. The eight miles, eight mile pizza. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Reference to, uh, actual Detroit, the eight mile street, which of course then is also referenced by the, uh, the white rapper Eminem who came out of Detroit and famously Um, has, has, and it's square. It is square. It is a square pizza and it is cooked in a, in a square rectangular baking pan. Um, 
and it is uh, really delicious. It, so it looks delicious. Yeah. I, I strongly recommend. Wow. Um, yeah. That looks awesome. So next time you're in State College, I'll, I'll take you to 8 Mile. We'll get some pizza. All right. I'm, I'm, count me in. Count me in. Count me in. Yeah, I'm looking at the hot, hot honey. Hot honey. Yeah. No hot honey beer to go with it. So no, thankfully. It be. Yeah. Awesome. Eight mile pizza. State yep. College, Pennsylvania. That's Check it out. Joy. Check it yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. I they should have an advent calendar for beer for uh, a pizza. For pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty four days of pizza. Different yeah. toppings. Yes. Yes. Because they have a dill pickle one, which I have not tried, but people say is quite good. That sounds I do like a dill pickle. Dill pickle flavored things like chips and well, you know, if you had a dill pickle pizza, then you could have your hot honey beer with it, and it would not be too much Ooh. hot honey. Yeah, I did. I didn't finish <laughs> that beer. I owed that beer nothing. I, 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 no. I was like, no, no. this yep. beer, this beer does not need to go into my belly. This beer can go into the drain. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, right. hot honey beer. Hot honey beer. No bueno. No bueno. <laughs> All right. We'll catch you next time. In between. We'll see you then. Bye now. Thank you.